Well, hey, everybody. How are you? So great to see you, and a special welcome to those of you joining us online. Uh, By the way, if this is your first time with us, either virtually or in person, you really picked a great weekend to jump on board, because today we're launching a new series called Virtual Israel, and as Randy has already mentioned, I couldn't be any more excited about it. In fact, I've been working on the content for more than a year now. And seriously, here's why. Uh, As many of you know, the plan in 2020 was to take 80 or so of you on an adventure to experience the land of Israel firsthand. So in anticipation of those trips, one in April, one in October, I studied like for hours Um, and I prepared my notes and I researched the sites we would visit. I I mean, I, I even got new luggage. Because I figured I'd look, no, look like I knew what I'm doing. Actually, we pre-scuffed it too, because you didn't want to be like with the guy on the first trip, even though it would have been. Anyway, uh, but then, uh, as you may have noticed, COVID happened, and Israel locked down, and we locked down, and all of my presentations went unpresented until now. <laughs> and so, because between now and Thanksgiving, I want to take you on a trip to Israel without leaving the comfort of West Michigan. Specifically, I want to introduce you to a few of the sites that set the stage for some iconic Old Testament stories, stories that ultimately set the stage for the coming of Jesus. And so the bad news is that I can't physically take you to the land of Israel right now, but the good news is that through the miracle of the internet, thank you, Al Gore, one more time, I can take you there virtually. Uh, And so so here's the plan. During each week of this series, I'm going to introduce you to a site that was on our trip itinerary originally, and hopefully will be again uh, if we get to go in October of 2021. Details will be forthcoming on that. But what we're going to do each week is explore the significance of the location, and then I'll teach the content I had planned to teach at that site. And as a bonus, you get to sit either in one of Keystone's ultra comfortable chairs, thank you, steel case, or if you're watching from home, your couch. Uh, while you listen, instead of um, sitting on a rock, which is often the only available seating at some of the biblical sites. But anyway, uh, today we get to explore one of the first stories in the Bible that is set in the land of Israel. And uh, scholars suggest that it happened around 4,000 years ago. And in many ways, it lays the foundation for everything that follows. Uh, Now, while we're not exactly sure where this story took place, a great place to examine it is an ancient city called Tel Arad. Uh, And Tel Arad stands in southern Israel in a portion of the Negev desert that receives very little rainfall. And by the way, many of the sites that we'll visit include the word Tel in them, just three letters, T-E-L. And a Tel is basically a name given to an artificial mound formed from the accumulated remains of generations of people living on the same site over hundreds of years. So they kind of look like a flat top mound and they're all over Israel. So I'm pretty excited about what comes next. So buckle up. Here's an animation from our friends at Google Earth to give you a sense of Arad's location. Go. Well, that was anti Oh, here we go. Yeah, check this out. So we're kind of leaving Ada, going over here to the Middle East, zooming into Israel, zooming in. So kind of in the south there. Uh, and this is Tel Arad. Uh, Tel Arad is, uh, if we can go to that next slide, you see a map. It's kind of down near the southern edge of the Dead Sea. So the Sea of Galilee would be up north. This is the Mediterranean. But te- archaeologically, Tel Arad is significant because it contains a Jewish fortress 
that guarded Israel's southern flank in ancient times. As we were driving up to it on the bus, the first time I saw it, I thought I was going to climb right into Star Wars. Check out this picture. Isn't that amazing? Um, It's also interesting uh, because there are well-preserved remains of a one-quarter scale Jewish temple to God modeled after the temple in Jerusalem. And you can see that identified on the map. And it's really well-preserved because it was buried completely around 700 BC when Israel's king ordered the destruction of all places of worship other than the temple to God in Jerusalem. So when the temple of Arad was uncovered in 1962, it had been buried for over 2,600 years. So the temple of Arad, as you can see, was divided into three primary areas. There was a a large worship court uh, where people congregated to witness the animal sacrifices that occurred on the altar. Um, And they noted that the altar was constructed of rough cut stones, which uh, surfaces in other places, including the temple in Jerusalem. And then there's a rectangular room called the holy place. That would be where only priests could go and they would do what only priests could do. And then the inner room, away in the back here, this is the holy of holies, where originally there were two stone tablets uh, placed there representing the 10 commandments. And by the way, uh, in Jerusalem's temple, the big one, uh, the Holy of Holies would have held the original 10 commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant, which you may have heard of because of Indiana Jones. You with me on that? Yeah. So anyway, the ruins of the temple at Arad give us an incredible opportunity to explore this, a space that represented ancient Israel's commitment to remember their special relationship with God. It was a relationship that began hundreds of years earlier, well before Israel was a nation, when God made contact with the man who would become the Jewish patriarch, an elderly, childless man named Abraham. And as you may recall, he had many sons, many sons he had, and I'm one of them, and sorry, sorry, that was just a Sunday school flashback for those of you that like that sort of thing. But anyway, God extended Abraham an incredible invitation and then made him a series of promises. The author of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, records God saying to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Then God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. He goes on, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then this, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, one of the things that makes Abraham's story so fascinating, at least for me, is that without asking for any clarification, Abraham accepts God's invitation. He and his family leave all they had ever known and walk hundreds of miles to the land that we today call Israel. They they move trusting that God will be faithful to fulfill his promise. But as the story unfolds, significant time passes and we learn that offspring are not forthcoming for Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So one night, while sitting in his tent, somewhere in the region around Tel Arad, as best we can tell, Abraham asks God if he was serious about the promises. And in response, Abraham tells God, or rather, God tells Abraham to go outside, and he says this. He says, look up at the heavens and count the stars. He says, so shall your offspring be. And then he goes on to say, I will give you this land to take possession of it. In other words, Abraham, the land on which you are currently camping is not yours now, but one day it will belong to your descendants. And Abraham responds, well, 
by asking what you or I would ask in a moment like this, if we were feeling bold enough, we would basically say, well, okay, God, that's great. I've moved hundreds of miles. I've done what you've asked, but how can I be sure that you'll do what you promised? And in response, God tells Abraham to do something that seems really strange, at least to us. In fact, if you've ever tried to read Genesis on your own, you probably got to this part and went, aha, uh-huh, I'm, I'm missing something here. And, and, and you are, and I'll tell you what you're missing. But anyway, he informs Abraham that the time has come to cut a covenant. In the ancient world, covenants were like contracts between two parties, but they were way more significant than contracts are today. Uh, they were binding agreements that defined the terms of a relationship. A covenant basically said, in effect, because of this agreement, we are permanently related. And by the way, that's why the Bible's writers uh, will describe marriage as a covenant and not just a contract. Ideally, the covenant of marriage creates an unbreakable bond of relationship. And that's also why that whenever I officiate a wedding, the bride and groom say things like, till death do us part or for the rest of my life. Because we see marriage as a covenant and not just a contract. But covenants in the ancient world, they came in two different flavors. Uh, Covenants could be cut between equal parties and covenants could also be cut between unequal parties, where there was a greater party and a lesser party involved. And obviously any covenant between God and anybody would be the latter type of covenant. Uh, And in those covenants, it was the responsibility of whoever was the greater party to set the conditions for both parties. So, So in this moment, Abraham realizes that God is going to cut a covenant with him to affirm his promise that his descendants would one day inherit the land of Israel, as well as the fact that one day all nations on earth would be blessed through his descendants. And I have to believe that in this moment, Abraham would have wondered, okay, this sounds great, but like, what is God going to require of me? Well, as the story continues, it becomes evident that all God was going to require of Abraham and his descendants is that they be perfect. That's it. Seriously. Uh, The author of Genesis records God's requirement this way. God looks at Abraham and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully. So far, so good. And be blameless. Uh Uh-oh. Then, as as long as you do that, then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. In other words, Abraham um, and your descendants, um, you just have to, you know, never, ever sin against God, ever. So, Fantastic. We gotta, let's get on with the covenant, right? And, and I imagine it as the reality of what was about to happen was sinking in. And before Abraham could like raise his hand and ask a clarifying question, God said, all right, it's go time. Let's do this. 4,000 years ago, covenants were always cut by the shedding of blood. This would have made sense to Abraham. So not surprisingly, God told Abraham, and this is the part where we often fall away from the narrative. like, what is going on? Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And some of you thought, this sounds like a Monty Python thing. It's not. Stay with me, okay? Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. And what I love about this is that Abraham, after gathering the animals, and God tells him to, and he does, that Abraham like knows what to do with them. And he knows because that's how covenants were made in the ancient world. God chose to leverage something that Abraham's cultural context would have understood in order to deliver an incredible message to him. Now, Bible nerds also point out that in this moment, God actually foreshadows the Jewish sacrificial system 
by naming the animals he would one day accept as sacrifice in future generations. Cows and goats and lambs and birds. Anyway, Abraham goes and gets the requested animals and kills them. He took the cow and the sheep and the goat and cut them in half from nose to tail. And this is what I study during the week. It's great. Trust me. Kind of like, whoa, right? Uh, Then he laid the halves so that the blood ran into the middle. Here's an artist's rendering of of what it kind of would have looked like. And I made sure it wasn't like a real one. So you can kind of get the sense. Uh, They would find an area where there was like a trough in the ground and then would cut the animals in half and the blood from the animals would drain into the trough, creating something of of a path. So Abraham would cut the bigger animals and then with the birds, he would just kill them and place them across from one another. So their blood as well flew into the blood path. Now, at this point in the ceremony, tradition dictated that each party seeking to enter the covenant would approach the blood path. At first, the greater party would take off his sandals and walk barefooted in the blood as if to say, if I don't live up to the conditions I've set for myself, because I'm the greater party, you can do this to me. I'll pay for my failure with my life. And then the lesser party would step up, remove his sandals and walk the path as if to say, if I don't live up to the conditions you have set for me, you can do this to me. I'll pay for my failure with my life. So Abraham prepared the path as God had requested. And as he did, I have to imagine that he was scared to death because Abraham would have known that the moment he placed his toe in the blood, he was as good as dead. There was no way he or his descendants could be perfect. So if he had stepped into the blood and promised to give his life for his sin or for his descendants sin, there wouldn't be any need for a promised land and there wouldn't be any need for descendants. Well, as the story continues, it takes a really unexpected twist. The author of Genesis records it this way. He tells us that as the sun was setting, Abram, which is another name for Abraham, it gets renamed later, but kind of confusing. Uh, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. In ancient Jewish culture, a thick and dreadful darkness is like a colloquial expression that basically means to be scared out of your mind. And Abraham, not surprisingly, was. So filled to overflowing with anxiety, Abraham watched and he waited. And then without warning, two symbols, two symbolic items appeared. A smoking fire pot, and a blazing torch. The fire pot in the ancient world was basically a jar with holes in it that people would use to gather the coals that they had used for cooking at the end of the day, and they'd cover it so it would give off smoke at night. And then in the morning, they would gather sticks and straw and use the hot coals to reignite the fire. So these two symbols appear, and as the account continues, and Abraham watches sort of in this dream state, the smoking fire pot passes between the dead animals. In a sense, the smoking fire pot walks the blood path. And Abraham would have understood it to represent the greater party in his covenant because the greater party always went first. It's interesting if you stop to consider it because throughout the Bible, God's presence is often presented in terms of smoke. Smoke descends on Mount Sinai when God gives Moses the original Ten Commandments. And smoke shows up as God's presence enter the tabernacle, which is the tent God had the people build in the wilderness, as well as the temple in Jerusalem. So so in the mind of Abraham, God stepped up. And it's only a symbol, but I think it communicates something powerful. I mean, if you think about it, 
the creator of the universe, because of how he loved Abraham, and ultimately because of how he loved us, came down and took off his sandals, so to speak, and walked barefooted in the animal blood, as if to say, I love you so much that I'm willing to put my life on the line for this relationship. Now, as incredible as all that sounds, things are actually just getting interesting because now it's Abraham's turn. And as I imagine it, uh, Abraham figured he was going to have to step up and remove his sandals. And then sort of as he's about to lift his shaking foot, preparing to step into the blood, knowing that he couldn't possibly live up to the conditions, he sees the blazing torch begin to move towards the blood path. And it's interesting to note that the authors of the Bible never use fire as a symbol for a human being. Fire is always used as a symbol for God. So as Abraham watched, God symbolically entered the blood path again. And the message in that moment would have been shocking and stunning and overwhelming, but incredibly clear to Abraham. God basically says in this moment to Abraham, if you or any of your descendants fail to keep this covenant, you can do this to me. I will pay for your failures with my life. And and this is Genesis, first book in the Bible. And if you were to say to me, when was the moment in the biblical account that God sentenced Jesus to death? It was this moment because Abraham knew and God knew in this moment that there was no doubt that Abraham and his descendants would sin. And knowing that beyond the shadow of a doubt, God said, I will pay for your sin. That's how much I love you. Well, time passes. Um, And around 400 years later, God set up a sacrificial system for Abraham's descendants. This is just after the Exodus story. Think Charlton Heston, you know, leaving Egypt, Ten Commandments. And shortly after getting the Ten Commandments, God sets up this sacrificial system and he prescribes all sorts of things that Abraham's descendants could do to make amends when they sinned. But there was one type of sacrifice that God wanted to be offered twice each day. And he describes it to Israel's leader at the time the command was given, a man named Moses. Here's what God told Moses. He says, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. And so the Jewish people almost immediately began this tradition. And as it developed, they began to sacrifice lambs at 9 a.m., and 3 p.m. every single day. And that made these sacrifices a bit unique. It's, it's like uh, these sacrifices were unique as God intended them to serve as a daily reminder that one day he would forgive the sins and that he would keep his promise. And as I imagine in that moment, um, Moses would have had a few clarifying questions for God. Uh, so, okay, God, what if it's raining? Do you still want us to sacrifice? And I think God would have said, yeah, you're going to get wet. I need you to remember. And Moses would say, well, what about the Sabbath day? We're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. And God says, no, this is more important. Even than that, you need to sacrifice every single day. On the, on the, if it's raining, if it's snowing, on the Sabbath. Uh, Moses like, how about a holiday? Like a, a big feast like Passover. And God's like, you definitely need to do it 
on Passover. You never take a day off because I need you to remember over and over and over again that one day I will forgive sins and that I will be faithful to keep my promises. And so every single day for 1,300 plus years, minus 100 or so when the temple uh, wasn't functioning due to its destruction, at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m., a lamb was offered on an altar so that the people would remember that God had promised to pay for their sins. And by the first century, by Jesus' time, that daily sacrifice had become an elaborate ceremony in the temple in Jerusalem. And I found an artist rendering, I think, kind of captures the energy of the moment. It's obviously way more grand than what was at temple or at uh, Tel Arad. But you see here the altar right in the front with the smoke rising. This would be the holy place, the large structure, and then the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant would be behind. But just notice with me all of the people that would gather and they would watch. Especially at two times of the day, at 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. Because at 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. as those times approached, a priest uh, would take up his place on the tower on the southwest corner of the temple. And he would stand in a niche, a little indentation, some 20 stories up in the air. This is a picture from Jerusalem today uh, of the southwest corner. So somewhere in that area that would have been uh, a, a priest who climbed up into the air. And after assuming the position, the priest would watch a sundial if the sun were out or an hourglass if the clouds had covered the sky. Uh, well, at the same time, about 600 feet away, in front of that altar in the temple, another priest took his place with a knife at the throat of the lamb chosen for the sacrifice. And when the hour for sacrifice came, either 9 a.m. or 3 p.m., a shofar was blown. And I brought, I actually have a shofar because I'm hardcore. Um, I'm, I must just, full confession here, I had to dust off my shofar today because it had been a minute since I'd pulled it out. Um, this shofar comes from the exotic um, uh, Amazon.com. So, I'm fairly sure it came from our friends in China and not Israel because it was a pretty good value. But you get the idea. Uh, it's, it's an ancient Israeli trumpet and it's used primarily for religious ceremonies. But when the hour for the sacrifice came, a shofar was blown um, and the train priest using, well, after the blast, the train priest down at the altar using the same weapon that would have been used for sacrifice in Abraham's time reminded the audience in Jerusalem that God had promised to pay for their sins. And so the trumpet would blast and the audience would fall silent. And in the silence, the priest would cut the throat and catch the blood and throw it against the altar and say, God, forgive us. Just like you promised. And this would happen at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. every single day. And then came a day around 2,000 years ago when the priest was at the tower awaiting the appointed time to blow the shofar and another priest was at the altar with his knife at the neck of a lamb and the city was packed that day because it was a Jewish festival called Passover. And just outside the city walls, there were three men hanging on crosses. They had been nailed there Amazingly enough, as the shofar blast sounded across the city at 9 a.m., announcing the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And, and they had hung there all day. Then when the hour of 3 p.m. arrived, 
the signal was given again. And the shofar was blown again, reminding everyone of God's promises to Abraham. The shofar blast over the city of Jerusalem would have sounded something like this. And in the silence that followed, a priest would cut the neck of the sheep. And at that very moment, the gospel writers tell us that the man who had been crucified in the middle of the other two raised his head. And in the strained voice of someone experiencing the horrors of crucifixion, uttered three words. In other words, I did it. I kept the promise. And at exactly three o'clock that day, Jesus' blood dripped into the dust of the land God had promised to Abraham. And when Jesus said, it is finished, I don't think he simply meant his sacrificial death. I think he meant it's all finished. I paid for the sins of everyone who believes. It's a new day. It's a new covenant. There's a new way for people to relate with God that they can approach him knowing their sins have been forgiven. Now, as, as a Bible teacher, I, it's hard to know where to go from there. Um, but, but before we close, I wanted to just make three observations from the story of Abraham that still speak powerfully to me today. And, and, and they go like this. Um, God knows us. God sees us. And God loves us. He knows us. He sees us. And he loves us. He, he knows that every single human being ever has sinned against him. And he knows that we're incapable of doing whatever we would need to do in order to make right the mistakes of our past. We can't go back and do it over again. So he knows. He knows where we've been. He knows what we've done. He knows it all. And, and, but, but that's actually not all. It's worse than that because he sees us. <laughs> he sees every single self-destructive choice that we will make moving forward from today. He sees all the times that we will know what the right thing to do is and we'll choose to do the wrong thing. We'll choose to sin anyway. He sees how we'll harm ourselves, how we'll harm our friends, how we'll harm our family, and even how we'll harm our world. He sees that how we are in and of ourselves unable to remain in right relationship with him. But fortunately, uh, that's not where this ends either because not only does he know us and he sees us, but, but he also loves us more than we can possibly imagine. He loves us so much that, that he was willing to do whatever it took to restore peace in his creation. And so, 4,000 years ago, he made a contract, cut a covenant with a man named Abraham. And he made Abraham a series of seemingly impossible promises. And then when the set time had fully come, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to earth to spill his blood and to demonstrate his faithfulness. 
I've said it before, and it's worth saying again, what all this means for each of us is just stunning. It means you never have to wonder how God feels about you. You never have to wonder how God feels about you because anyone who would send his one and only son to be sacrificed for you is for you. So you don't ever have to wonder. He knows you in all of the unvarnished glory and brokenness. He knows you and he sees you. But even just as you are, he loves you. That brings us uh, to the end of our time together. But but my hope is that all of this uh, will spark conversation with whoever you do life with. And I hope for some of you, maybe at home, that that conversation will begin right now. And and so I just want to give you three questions uh, before we pray and close. Uh, First question goes like this. Does it surprise you to learn that God leverages images that made sense in the ancient world to communicate his plan? As in when he cut a covenant with Abraham and we read it today going, I have no idea what's going on, but what does it tell us about God that he's willing to accommodate his message to the capacity of his audience? And how might that reality impact the way you read the Bible or approach the Bible? The second question goes like this. How does the significance of your participation in communion change? when you understand it to be a symbol of God's covenant with you. Uh, That night at the Last Supper, Jesus holds up a cup and says, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So I think it just really enriches that experience. And finally, number three, uh, this week I said, you never have to wonder if God is for you. You're like, hey, you just said that like a minute ago, right? Um, Anyone who would send his one and only son to die for you is for you. Do you tend to think that God is for you? Uh, Why or why not? And there's a chance there to maybe share a a little bit of of your journey of faith. And so uh, why don't you stand um, and stay with us for just one moment online and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are love. And that has been your character for, from time eternal. And so for today, we, we celebrate that love. We celebrate that goodness. That approached humanity in a, that was broken beyond repair with a message of hope that our failures are not final, that you, you desire to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us, to teach us a new way to be in the world. For today, we just say thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was and is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we never get over the wonder of what happened that day when he hung on a cross so that we could be free. And so in this moment, we just say thank you. We bless you. We love you because you first loved us. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week for part two of Virtual Israel. 